Today we come to John chapter 20, and we're going to see how the risen Jesus draws people to himself. The risen Jesus draws people to himself. So in the spring of 2009, my family went on a camping trip to the Grand Canyon. And my husband really wanted us all to get up early one morning to drive to a point on the canyon where it was supposed to be a really good place to watch the sunrise. So as we zipped into our sleeping bags the night before, my son set an alarm on his new watch for us to get up in time to drive over and see the sunrise. So the alarm went off and boy, was it dark out. But they say that it's always darkest before the dawn, right? So we thought nothing of it and we got into the car And when my husband put the key in to turn the ignition on, the digital clock came on, and we saw the actual time. It was only 1.30 in the morning. (laughs) So I mentioned it was Ian's new watch. He hadn't really figured out all the features yet, and somehow he had changed us to a different time zone or something. So we would have had a long wait for the sunrise, so we went back to bed, and we got up later to see the real thing. And it really wasn't that remarkable, but anyway... Most of you have seen the sunrise at some point in your life. Maybe it was on a camping trip like we were, or maybe when you're awake with a crying newborn early in the morning or on the way to work for an early shift. And we know that the sun does not rise over the horizon in one quick movement. It happens gradually. And first we see a faint glow on the horizon, and the sky begins to look a little bit more blue than black. The stars begin to fade away, and you can see the outline of things in the distance. And then the colors turn a little more muted, but you can start to see some color. And then things way off in the distance start to pick up the rays of the sun. And as time goes on, eventually everything comes into the light. And perhaps even in your own salvation story, you can think of how the truth began to dawn in your life a little bit like that. You heard the gospel, and you truly believed And yet there were still so many things you didn't quite understand. So much was still in the shadows. But as your understanding and knowledge grow and continue to grow, things become clearer and clearer. So in our passage today, we're going to see how the truth of Jesus' resurrection was dawning in the hearts of his followers, kind of like the sunrise dawns at the beginning of each day. These men and women had been with Jesus. They'd seen the miracles that he performed. They believed that he was the Messiah come to take away the sins of the world. And then he died, and they were in darkness, and they didn't know how to understand what was happening. Even though he had told them plainly several times that he would die and rise again, they still hadn't quite understood it. There was still so much they didn't grasp. But on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, there was this growing awareness and realization of what had happened. So today we're going to look at John's account of the resurrection and be amazed at how Jesus conquered death and still had so much tenderness and patience toward his followers as the light of his awesome work began to dawn in their hearts as he drew them closer to himself. Our pastor taught us last Sunday from the story of Zacchaeus about how Jesus is a seeking savior. He came to seek and to save the lost. And in this passage, we also see him doing the seeking. He's seeking out his people to bring them into his presence and to perfect their faith. So as we go through the narrative today, we're going to see four ways 
that Jesus draws individuals to himself. Four ways that Jesus draws people to himself. And the first thing we'll look at is that his power, the power that he displays, draws people to himself. So we're going to start by reading chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. So follow along with your Bibles. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb and the two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him, and he entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but folded up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had come first to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet... They did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to where they were staying. So looking back in the story just a little bit, we know that Jesus was crucified on Friday. And so he was in the tomb from around sundown on Friday and all day Saturday, which was the Sabbath day, right? And it was a holy day, a special Sabbath day. So what do we know about the Sabbath? Well, Scripture tells us that the Sabbath was kept by the Jewish people by the command of God as a day of rest to commemorate what Jesus had done after his work of creation. After the six days of creation, God rested. And so the Jewish people were to commemorate that day by not doing any work on the Sabbath. God's work of creation was finished. It was finished. And so on the seventh day, he rested. And now we see Jesus' work on the cross was finished. And we have another Sabbath day of rest. Saturday went by in silence. And now in John chapter 20, we come to the first day of the week, the day that we call Sunday. And chapter 20 begins with Mary Magdalene, the woman that Luke 8 tells us was delivered by Jesus from seven demons that had possessed her. And she became one of Jesus' many followers devoted women who followed Jesus and his disciples and provided for them out of their private means. So Mary Magdalene was a devoted follower of Christ. John tells us that Mary came early to the tomb while it was still dark out. So in talking about the sun rising, we know that other accounts communicate this differently. They say the sun had already risen or it was dawn. But don't let this distress you. The gospel writers describe these early morning hours in different ways, just like you and I would, right? When the sun is risen, but maybe it's still behind a hill or behind some trees, we might say the sun is risen. It's the day is dawned, but some might still say it's dark out because it hasn't fully risen yet. But Mary got to the tomb at this early point in the day, and the other gospel writers tell us that she met some women there. But from John, we know that Mary was the first one to arrive. And Matthew says that Mary had come to look at the grave. Mark tells us that she brought spices. So we can put these things together and figure that she was coming to the tomb. She was going to meet her friends there, and they were going to ask someone to roll away the stone 
so that they could further honor Jesus by adding additional spices to his grave clothes. But upon arriving there, Mary is the first to discover that the stone had already been moved. And when she looks in, she sees that Jesus is not there. So like Mary, anyone who arrived on the scene at that time could have looked in and seen that there was no body. And our pastor, John, says that that is precisely why the stone was moved away. God didn't need to move the stone to deliver Jesus from the grave. Jesus didn't need for the stone to be moved so that he could get out. But the stone was moved so that everyone would know that Jesus was not there, that he had risen. And really, this is the greatest miracle of all, isn't it? And it's recorded in every gospel account. Jesus had risen from the dead, conquering death for all who would believe in him. Jesus had suffered on the cross as if he was a sinner who never repented, a sinner worthy of death. He endured a death of maximum shame on our behalf, where we deserve to die. He took our punishment. And when he was buried in that tomb, our guilt and shame were buried with him. And then when he rose from the dead, the effectiveness of what his death had done on the cross for us was proven. It was verified. His soul had not been left in Hades, the land of the dead, The Holy One of God did not undergo corruption in the grave like Psalm 1610 prophesied. No, his sacrifice, once for all, who would believe in him, was fully accepted by God and was proven when he was raised to new life. He was risen never to die again. He is the resurrection and the life of John chapter 11. And his new life had power. Jesus' life has power to bring us to life. His life holds the promise of our new life. Because Jesus conquered death for us, our souls will never die. As we considered last week how he was stripped naked for us and how we now wear his robes of righteousness. When God looks at us, he no longer sees our sin, but he sees the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness covers us as a garment. And when our physical bodies perish one day, We have confidence that we will not see corruption in the grave. For those who are saved, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, as 2 Corinthians 5, 8 teaches us. Death does not have victory over those who are in Christ. And Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22, that because Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep, Because by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now in verse 2, John says that Mary ran and came to Peter and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And she told them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. So while there was no eyewitness to the actual physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead, No one saw Jesus rise, but Mary Magdalene was the first to see the empty tomb and to go and tell others about it. And we'll see later that she's also the first one to see Jesus alive again. We can only guess who they were that she was accusing of taking the body of Jesus, but her reaction reveals that she had no idea that Jesus had risen from the dead. Verse 3 describes how Peter and John ran to see for themselves if what Mary said was true. They set out together, going to the tomb, and began running. John tells us that he ran faster than Peter and got there first, and stooped in to look 
into the tomb but didn't go inside. Peter, the impulsive one, runs into the tomb as soon as he gets there. And what did he see? He saw the linen wrappings that had bound Jesus' body lying there in one place with no body in them. John saw that as well. And Peter also saw that the wrappings and the face cloth that had covered Jesus' face, and that face cloth had been neatly rolled up and put to one side in a place by itself. So since rumors about grave robbers were persisting even to the day of John's writing of this gospel, John includes these details so that we know that the empty tomb was really quite orderly. It did not have the look of a tomb that had been ransacked. First of all, grave robbers would have been in a hurry and would not have taken the time to unwrap Jesus from the linen wrappings. It would have been much easier to carry a dead body all wrapped up. But even if they did want to unwrap the corpse for some reason, they would have made a huge mess in doing so, unwinding the body laden with over 75 pounds of spices, and they would not have neatly rolled up the cloth that had covered his face and put it to one side. There was no mess like this. All of the linen was lying there in one place. Now John, who reminds the readers again that he was the first one to arrive at the tomb, records for us that he saw and believed. We're not exactly sure what he believed at this point, because as we will see later, none of the disciples really believed in the resurrection until they saw Jesus risen with their own eyes. We know that at least John was beginning to believe Mary's report that Jesus' body was gone. John tells us next that up to this point, the disciples still didn't really understand the teachings of the Old Testament scriptures or the words of Jesus that had indicated that he would rise again. But in some small way, John was beginning to believe, the light was beginning to dawn, the events were set in motion so that all of Jesus' followers soon would know that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. And the power of his resurrection, we know, brings new life to all who believe in him. And that power continues today, and it will never be diminished. The power that Jesus displayed over death by rising to new life continues to draw people to himself. And second, we see that the patience that Jesus demonstrates towards his followers also draws people to himself. And we're going to look at that from verses 11 to 18. So follow along with me as I read. But Mary, standing outside the tomb, crying, and so as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you crying? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around. And saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you crying? Whom are you seeking? Thinking him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father But go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. So in verse 11, John's narrative turns back to Mary again to record what happened to her after she had gone to find Peter and John. She returned to the tomb sometime after Peter and John had already gone away. 
And now for the next seven verses, Jesus focuses on, John focuses on Mary and her interaction with Jesus. When Mary came back to the tomb, it tells us that she stood there weeping because she was still under the assumption that Jesus' body had been taken away by some bad actors. Her love for Jesus is evident, but it's also clear again that she didn't expect that he had risen from the dead. And as she cried, she bent down to look in the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting there where Jesus' body had been. She sees two angels and they speak to her and they ask her why she is weeping. The original language of this question here indicates that this was not an inquiry on the part of the angels. They weren't trying to figure out what Mary was doing. It was more like a rebuke. Why are you weeping? Don't you know this is not a time for weeping? But she's still stuck on her original thought. And for some reason, the presence of these angels doesn't seem to make much of an impact on her. She continues to say, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have put his body. She still didn't understand. She'd seen so much, and yet she still didn't know quite what to make of it all. And then she turns around, and who's standing there? Jesus himself. But she doesn't recognize him, even though he speaks to her and asks her, what are you crying for? For whom are you looking? We don't know why exactly Mary didn't recognize Jesus. It could just be that she was simply not expecting him to be there. Her brain just didn't connect the dots. But it could also be that Jesus providentially hid himself from her in some way. We know that this happened on at least two other occasions, like on the road to Emmaus and when the disciples were out fishing, as we'll look at next week in John 21. But whatever the case, Mary doesn't recognize him and she assumes that he is the gardener. And she says to him, if you've taken away the body of Jesus, tell me and I'll go and get him. Mary wanted to be near Jesus again. She wanted to minister to his dead body, and she was set on finding him. But from verse 16, we see that it doesn't really matter why Mary assumed the gardener would have moved Jesus' body or what she thought she would do if she could find him again, because Jesus himself was standing right there. Mary, he said. In saying her name, the narrative tells us that in that moment, Jesus' true identity became clear to her. The good shepherd had called her name, and she heard his voice. It was the voice of her Savior. Remember in John chapter 4, Jesus' first revelation of himself as the Messiah was to a sinful Samaritan woman. And now, his first appearance after his resurrection from the dead was to Mary Magdalene, a woman that he had saved from demon possession. In this gospel, we clearly see Jesus' love for sinners. He came to seek and to save the lost. We also see his love for women as people created in the image of God. He is not a God who shows partiality or prejudice to any person, man or woman, Jew or Gentile. He values each person as made in his image for his glory. And we'll see throughout this narrative how Jesus is so patient with his people, with all of his people, no matter who they are, as they grow in their understanding of his work. And this should give us comfort because he's also patient with us. Our salvation, when we come to know Christ and believe that he is the son of God and confess our sins, it happens in an instant that we're saved. But our growth in our understanding of all the implications of this is gradual. And it really lasts a lifetime, doesn't it? And this is something so beautiful. No matter whether you've been saved for 50 years or for five days, There's always something to learn from one another. 
His word is living and active in our lives. And someone who's been saved for a long time can talk to a brand new believer and learn something new or learn something from their example of faith. Maybe you've even seen that happening within your groups here at EWG. There's always more of God's character to discover. There's always truth to be embraced and to be applied more fully to our lives. God's word always holds fresh lessons for us and fresh encouragement for us. Well, Mary called Jesus teacher or rabbi, which was a title of respect in Hebrew. And then verse 17 tells us that Jesus gave Mary a command. It was two parts. First, it was in the negative. He said, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. As much as Mary probably didn't want to ever let Jesus go or leave her side again, Jesus told her that he was not back to stay on earth indefinitely, but would be ascending to the father. And the second thing he commands her is in the positive. She's to go to his brethren and say, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. The brethren or brothers that Jesus was referring to here were Jesus' disciples. Remember from John 15, 15, Jesus said, No longer do I call you slaves, but I have called you friends. Now Jesus is calling his disciples his brothers. This is the first time that he uses this title for them, and it indicates an even more intimate and even deeper relationship that these men now have with their Lord. They are his family. Remember from John 17, 24, Jesus' prayer to the Father. He desires to have an intimate relationship with us. He wants us to be with him where he is. But in order for that relationship to be as close as possible, he has to go away first. He had to return to the Father. And this, too, had already been told to the disciples. Remember in John 14, he said, For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He had risen, but his plan was to return to heaven from whence he would send the Holy Spirit to fill his followers with power. So Mary Magdalene obeyed Jesus. She let him go, and she went to the disciples, announcing that she had seen the risen Jesus, and she told them the things that he had said to her. We see a little bit later that they didn't believe Mary's account until they actually saw Jesus with their own eyes. Jesus was going away, but he would come again. And we're still waiting for this second coming, aren't we? And we also know, because scripture tells us, why he's waiting. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9 says, Do not let this fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, and that is his promise to return, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Jesus is patient with us as we grow in our faith. He is also patiently waiting for all those whom he has called to come to repentance, and then he will return. His resurrection power and his patience draw people to himself. Third, we will see that the peace Jesus delivers draws people to himself. The peace Jesus delivers. And we'll look at that from verses 19 to 23. So follow along with me. Verse 19 says, So while it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and while the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace 
be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So on the evening of that same day, this is still Sunday, verse 19 tells us that the disciples were gathered in one room with the doors shut and locked. Scripture tells us that this is because they were afraid of the Jews. It had been a traumatic few days for these men. They had seen what the envious and spiteful Jewish leaders had done to Jesus. The disciples had escaped, but they probably wondered if they were next on the Jewish hit list. And now the body of Jesus was missing, and maybe they were going to be accused of stealing him away. And into this midst of fearful brothers steps the risen Jesus, and his message for them, peace be with you. Now this was a common greeting in Hebrew and Aramaic, but from the lips of the risen Savior, we see that this greeting takes on a rich meaning. So let's briefly consider what is peace? Specifically, what is the peace that Jesus brings? Well, the book of Genesis tells us that there was true peace in the garden after creation. Adam and Eve lived at peace with God. They were at peace with one another. They were at peace with the animals. The animals were even at peace with each other. And then even to the, or to the plants and the trees, there were no pests. There were no weeds. The earth yielded its fruit without any trouble or work. There was no fighting, there was no conflict, there were no wars. There was perfect harmony and peace in relationships. But we know that when Adam and Eve sinned, that peace was forfeited. And every aspect of life on earth was changed, was disrupted by sin. And then wars and conflicts have dominated earth's history ever since. In nations and in families and in relationships. But since the very beginning of that struggle, as we looked at last week in Genesis 3.15, when God said that one of Eve's offspring would one day strike the serpent, the devil, who had tempted Adam and Eve into sin with a fatal blow, the promise has been there of a redeemer, one who would make peace. And we we looked last week at how God made the first clothing for Adam and Eve, showing that a sacrifice was needed to cover sin. And now here he is. The sacrifice had come. It was finished, as we saw in John 19. Death was defeated, and Jesus had accomplished the work of God. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, which is Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. God sent Jesus to be our peace. He made peace with man through the death of Christ. And so when he comes to the disciples and wishes them peace, this is the true peace that he had won for them through his sacrifice on the cross. Verse 19 tells us that he came into their midst in spite of the doors being locked and stood bodily among them. We can only speculate as to how he did this. But remember, this is John's eyewitness testimony of what happened. The risen Christ was standing there right in front of them. 
Luke 24, 37 to 43 gives us some additional details about how the disciples reacted to Jesus being there. It says, but they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. You looked at this a little bit in your lesson, how this wording is similar to 1 John 1, 1 and 2, which we memorized in the fall semester. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. The scars showed that this was still Jesus in human flesh, not just a spirit, not a ghostly vision, not an angel, and not some imposter. The disciples heard Jesus' voice, and they could see and feel his wounds and know for sure that this was their friend, now their brother, Jesus the Nazarene, the one who had died and was buried. He had risen again. And verse 20 tells what the reaction was to seeing him in this way. When they saw, they believed and rejoiced. So in their case, seeing was believing. They had no reason to deny what had clearly happened. They had seen the risen Lord with their own eyes and touched him with their own hands. Their hopes, which had been dashed on Friday, were now rekindled, and they had cause to rejoice. And he came to them bringing peace. The peace that God brings is so amazing. And we see that it's also contained in the disciples' marching orders, which come next in verse 21. Jesus repeats the statement to them, peace be with you. And then he commissioned the disciples. As he had been sent by the Father into the world to proclaim salvation, he was now sending them to do the same thing. The Father sent Jesus to serve and to give up his life for his followers. And now the disciples were sent out to serve and to give up their lives for the sake of the gospel. This was their purpose for continuing on earth. Jesus at this point in verse 22 breathes on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the source of peace and power that the disciples would receive to go and act as his representatives. The Holy Spirit that he would send. The blowing of Jesus' breath symbolized the work of the Holy Spirit in forgiving sins, in giving new life, and declaring what God had already done. So our pastor says that this breathing of Jesus and this commission was a preview and a preparation for what was to come after Jesus returned to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit to permanently indwell and empower the disciples and all who would believe, as is recorded for us in the book of Acts. Verse 23 says that forgiveness was the message that the disciples had to give to the world. Now, we know that only those who believe in Jesus have forgiveness with God. Only those who trust in the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf can be forgiven and made right before God. The Pharisees, remember, when Jesus told the paralytic that his sins were forgiven, They were right when they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? That was in Mark 2, 7. Well, we know that Jesus is God and does have the authority and power to forgive sins. But the 
The Pharisees were right. Only God has that authority and power. And we also know that belief in Jesus is the only remedy for sin. John 8, 24 tells us where Jesus said that, Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus was the only way to have forgiveness with God. We know that making people right with God through forgiveness of sin is not the work of any man, but God's work alone through the saving work of Christ. So what Jesus is saying to the disciples in this passage is that as they went out in his name and in his authority, anyone who heeded the message of the gospel would receive full and free forgiveness through Christ because of the work that he had done for them on the cross. Likewise, rejection of the message meant rejection of Jesus, which would lead to God's impending judgment. There is no forgiveness for those who reject Jesus Christ and his gospel. But to those who believe, the disciples had the authority given from Christ to pronounce their sins as forgiven. Jesus has the power to save and reconcile men to God, making peace between God and man. The disciples would also go out in his power, equipped for their mission. And the book of Acts tells us that they did so. And now through them and the continuation of their work that Jesus began, the entire church, all of us, bring God's message to the world. Though people in their natural state are enemies of God, Jesus has come to make peace between God and man. We know that not everyone will respond to this message. This message is rejected by many, but we have to go and we have to let people know that Jesus made our peace with God possible. So where are we going? Who are we telling? Remember, this is the reason that Jesus is waiting patiently. The power that he displayed over death, the patience that he demonstrates toward his people, the peace that he delivers to us and through us, These things draw people to Jesus. And finally, we see that the promises of Jesus, the promises that he declare, draws people to himself. And we'll look at this from verses 24 through the end of the chapter, verse 31. So let's read those verses together. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, And the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Bring your finger here, and see my hands, and bring your hand here, and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So we come in this section to find out that Thomas had not been there, when Jesus revealed himself to the rest of the disciples. You remember Thomas. He was one of the 12 original disciples. And when Jesus was wanting to return to Judea to raise Lazarus, after they had just fled from Judea because people were trying to kill Jesus, Thomas was the one who said, 
Let us go so that we may die with him. And it was Thomas who said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Pessimistic, questioning, but committed to Jesus nonetheless. But when the other disciples tried to convince Thomas of what they had seen, he refused to believe without seeing the wounds for himself. He was willing to believe, but he would have to see Jesus with his own eyes. So Thomas gets a bad rap. And yes, he should have believed the testimony of the disciples. But the other disciples also didn't believe until they had seen the scars of Jesus either. And next in verse 26, we read that eight days passed by. Eight days and the disciples didn't see Jesus. They didn't know where he was or what he was up to. And neither do we. And here we find the disciples again inside a room with the doors shut and the language of that implies that they were locked again. And Jesus comes into their midst once again. We see that there was probably some, still some fear operating in the disciples. They were beginning to understand, still hiding in fear of the Jews. And Jesus doesn't rebuke them for this, but he greets them once again and says, peace be with you. The Holy Spirit had not yet come, and the disciples were still sort of in this waiting phase. And after this greeting, Jesus went directly to Thomas, and he revealed himself to Thomas, meeting him in his place of stubbornness and doubt. It's interesting to look at the parallels of what Thomas had said in verse 25, when Jesus was not present, and what Jesus says to him in verse 27. So Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and Jesus says, see my hands. And Thomas says, and put my finger into the scars. And Jesus says, reach here your finger. Thomas says, and put my hand into his side. Jesus says, put your hand in my side. Thomas says, I will not believe. And Jesus says to him, be not unbelieving, but believe. There's no question that Jesus is omniscient and omnipresent. He knew exactly what Thomas had said, and he responded accordingly. And Thomas then responds in obedience and belief, he proclaimed his personal allegiance to Jesus as his Lord and God. And this is the right response, as Thomas willingly submits after seeing the evidence so clearly. And then in verse 29, Jesus declares that Thomas, and the other disciples are included in this, believed as a result of seeing with their own eyes that Jesus had risen from the dead. Their belief came after they had seen, and their belief was genuine. But then Jesus promises a blessing on those who believe without seeing. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. God's favor is upon those who believe by faith. Abraham in Genesis 15:6 is often referred to as the father of faith because in Genesis it says that he believed God and that he had that belief credited to him as righteousness. And then Hebrews 11 tells of many of the saints of old who looked ahead and banked on the promises of God to send a Savior. They looked ahead in faith. And we who live after the cross, we've never seen Jesus with our eyes. We've never put our hands into his scars. But we can look back to the work of the cross based on the eyewitness evidence of those who saw him in his resurrection glory. We are those who have not seen and yet believe. And God promises to bless our faith. Believing without seeing brings a blessing. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says that we walk by faith, not by sight. We do not need to see Jesus in the flesh to believe. 
and to receive salvation. All the riches of salvation are ours by faith alone. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes about how Christians should rejoice in their trials. Listen to the result of doing so that he gives in verses 6 through 9 of 1 Peter 1. He says, Rejoice in the midst of trials so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now but believe in him, you rejoice with you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Our commissioned Bible study has been going through 1 Peter this year and when we came to this verse it was explained very clearly that it is our glory and honor and praise that Peter is referring to in this passage and that really took me by surprise. The praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ is bestowed on those who love and believe in Jesus as Savior. Even though we have not seen him, we believe, and we greatly rejoice because we know that we will be glorified with him. These are magnificent promises of blessing that draw us to Jesus. Thomas should have believed the testimony of his fellow disciples, but in God's providence, the testimony of Thomas in his doubt and his doubts being erased is added as further encouragement to us to believe that these things are indeed true. Here was a guy, here was a group of guys that were not going to be easily tricked. And this fits perfectly into the purpose for which John wrote his gospel. Verses 30 to 31, I've been keeping track. These verses have been referred to in every single lecture that we've heard this year. So you all know these verses very well. They're the key verses of John and declare his purpose for writing. The first purpose is so that we would believe and would continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, the human being, the man who lived and walked in the land of Israel, the anointed one, the long-expected Messiah, the very Son of God, begotten of the Father, the second member of the Godhead, fully God and fully man, John wrote so that we would believe Jesus is everything that he said he is. The second purpose for John recording these things is that having believed in Jesus and continuing to believe that we would have life in his name. His name refers to everything about his person, his origins, his character, his deeds, his words, his commands, his promises, his prohibitions. All of these things reveal to us who he is and that he is trustworthy and true. Belief in the name of Jesus, belief in the truth of all he said and did, is the only way to have new life. Belief in his name imparts power, the power of his risen life to us. The most precious truth of all is that Jesus, death, and resurrection conquered death on our behalf. And so we can now cling to these promises of blessing as we wait for his return. And while we wait, we have full access to the peace that Jesus gives through his Holy Spirit. And we want to see others have that same peace with God. And just as Jesus was patient with the disciples as they grew in their understanding of these things, he is patient with us as we grow in our understanding of him and his word and as the light dawns in our hearts. Jesus has risen from the dead. 
Our hope in heaven is secure. We will continue to grow more and more into his image until we see him face to face. The sunrise analogy that we started with today is also used by Peter when he wrote in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 19. Here he's giving his own eyewitness testimony from the time when he saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. He testifies to the fact that Jesus was sent by the Father. He wrote, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. More certain than if we had seen Jesus with our own eyes is the testimony that we have in God's word. God's word is an amazing treasure. By it, we have light while we wait for Jesus to return. So let's pray together that we would all continue to pay close attention to God's word, being careful to put it into practice until the day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony that it gives us all the way from Genesis to Revelation of how you are a God who came to seek and save the lost. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ. We thank you for his resurrection power. We thank you that we do not need to fear death, that our bodies, if we believe in him, will never see corruption in the grave. Lord, we can't praise you enough for these things, and we just ask that our lives would give you honor and glory, that you would save more people through our testimony, through our witness, through your providential working in each of our lives. Lord, we commit the rest of this day to you in Jesus' name. Amen.